Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. We are at the conference Phosphor G State of the Map in Melbourne, and I'm joined today by PostGIS co-founder Paul Ramsey and Oliver Looker from NGIS. My name's Adam Mullis, and this is Location Matters episode 22, and we are talking about open source software. That's what the whole conference is about, and it's a really fascinating two days. And we've been learning about some amazing applications of open source software, what people are doing with it, um, how they're applying data in all their different um, countries. So I'm going to start with you, Paul. You gave the keynote uh, here yesterday at Phosphor-G, and you're really well known in the open space world. So why have you chosen in your life to devote so much time to this? I came to open source um, as a as a consultant uh, working for government. And what I found was that the tools that I could get for the open source world were just that much more flexible and adaptable. Because you, you build big systems. When you're working for government, you build big systems and you string together bits and pieces. And the bits and pieces that open source provided were more reliable, they were easier to fit together. And, uh, and I didn't feel like I had to ask permission to use them. So it was much faster to get off the ground and build prototypes and so on. So it was, very, it was a very practical starting point for open source. But once you get sort of past the using and enjoying as a user, you find that there is sort of this whole extra door that swings open. And you realize that behind the software, there's this big community of people. And it's a very, it's a very open and sharing community. It's a community where people um, are inclined to answer questions for free, to tell you their opinions without varnishing them. Uh, there's no marketing department. So when you ask someone, you know, does this software work well for this purpose, they'll say, no, no, you're choosing the wrong thing. You should probably go look at this other software over here. So there's, there's a premium on honesty and straight talk, which for, for technical folks who are trying to get to a solution is it's really freeing. Uh, there's none of this wandering through the desert trying to peel back the layers of marketing speak to find out if there's a truth under there. It just shows up unvarnished. And once you get to the second level, so you join this community, you start help pe- helping people do their things, solve their problems, is you realize that by doing so, um, you're creating an edifice, you're creating software which is going to vastly outlive you and be useful by a population of far more than the number of people you ever meet in your life, right? I mean, I've, I've met lots and lots of people who use PostGIS and get great things out of it, and it's really ego gratifying to hear them say, hey, that's wonderful, and your software helped me solve my problems. Um, it's even more ego gratifying to sort of sit and look at the sky and think that the number of people who have had a similar experience is, you know, a couple order of magnitude larger than the number of people I've ever actually met and talked to about PostGIS. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, we use it at work. Um, tell me about some of the things that you've actually learned. I mean, you've, you spoke yesterday about how you had a patron um, inside was it the state government of Vancouver? Yeah, the British Columbia provincial government. British Columbia provincial government, apologies. Um, and he was essentially um, pivotal in helping you actually get the investment required to get it off the ground, to give it some legs. So you've, you've come a long way since then, um, 0.1, now you're up to 2.5. What, what have you learned along the way? Um, one of the things I've learned, uh, the open source world tends to talk too much about licensing and intellectual property under what license are we going to distribute this software? And there were religious wars about it. Should we use a, a share lake license like the GPL? Should we use something more academic or corporate like the Apache license or the BSD license? And people will get into very long arguments about what license is right. 
And having watched both the Postgis project and a number of other projects in the open source world um, go from brand new projects, uh, active with large communities and maturing over time, it's been very clear to me that the legal framework around the code has been almost irrelevant. Um, you need to have the baseline, which says, you know, free to use, free to redistribute, um, free to change. But beyond that, everything else is gravy. What really matters for success of these projects is the gathering of people, having a healthy community. So the difference between a healthy project and an unhealthy project is not the legal framework that undergirds it. It's the number of people which are working on it. So you know, one of the things which I wish I could go back and change about the Postgis project is the license. Uh, we chose the uh, GPL license way back in 2001, thinking, oh, well, we want to protect our intellectual property. We don't, don't want people to take Postgis and commercialize it. Well, that was never going to happen, it turns out. Um, and had we chosen a more liberal license, it would have been easier for us to integrate our work into the Postgres community, which has a more liberal license. Um, we would have had to answer a lot less, a lot fewer questions from users who came to us and said, we want to use your software. Is this license going to mean that we have to release all of our software too? No, the answer is no, you don't have to do that. But having that particular license, which is really strong on sort of protecting the intellectual property and ensuring it remained free forever, ended up causing more troubles than it and it's solved, we would have been far better off just saying, hey, if we can build a good community, it doesn't matter what people do with our software. So the first thing I learned was that community was a big deal, which sort of falls into the second thing I learned, which is karma is another big deal. You know, you build community by paying it forward, by putting what you have out there, not expecting anyone to give, give it back to you. Just know that if you put your work out in the universe, good things will come back to you. And uh, if you enter the into the open source process in a spirit of giving, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work well for you. The flip side of that, um, when you get enough success, if you build up enough karma, is eventually you have, to, uh, you have to start feeding yourself and saying no because the amount of things that people will ask you will eventually exceed your ability to fulfill them. Um, and that's something which I've sort of come upon later in life when other things have taken up my time, things like having family and kids. You only have so much free time, so you actually have to start picking and choosing what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to put out there. Um, and finally, the, the one from a software developer point of view is that uh, the only feature that anyone ever cares about is faster. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because they already know what the software will do. They know the existing feature set. So if you just tell them, I made it faster, they can immediately understand that. If you say, I added this new feature, well, they have to understand that new feature before they can understand whether they like it or not. But if you just told, tell them that you've made the existing stuff faster, that's a win. It's, it's shallow, but people like their software to go faster all the time. Well, time is money, right? Yeah. Speaking of money, Oliver, tell me, why should people get into supporting open source software? So obviously part of NGIS is that we do sell commercial software licensing, right? We're also involved in open source. So what, when do you use it? Why should you use it? Yeah, that's, that's right, Adam. I mean, we're involved with um, many different technology products, um, some of which are open source and obviously some of those that are commercial. I mean, just yesterday, um, I was pretty busy actually. I was at Phos4G in the morning and then scooted over across town and went across to Osri, which is the Esri conference. Um, so I've, I've let the cat out of the bag. I'm, I'm seeing some sharp looks from uh, Paul across the table. But... <laughs> I suppose that this comes back to understanding the customer needs um, and what you know what capabilities they have, 
um, their requirements and with that then looking at the technical solutions and I suppose where we sort of have that, um, that differentiator is understanding that hey open source can actually really provide uh, a very good uh, platform um, for your GIS and, and location intelligence needs. Um, so with that in mind that's where we sort of you know work through with the customer and, and see what they have available and typically if they don't really have some of the funding um, in place they can get started straight away with the likes of QGIS or using PostGIS as a database um, and, and some of the other tools that are available particularly in the data analytics space now. Um, so usually it comes down to sort of funding and money available to get started. I think location and spatial information should be available to anyone and, and really open source enables that. I mean, we've got um, some people that we know in Western Australia, some government clients who have really gone deep down this path, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so there's some, some different agencies there. I know the, the, the Department of Parks and Wildlife have a, a significant investment in that um, sort of citizen-centric um, spatial information and access to information and using open source tools for that. And that's a fully functioning enterprise environment. Um, and it works. Um, and they can integrate with other um, agencies who are using more proprietary tools. Um, so yeah, you can definitely go from small scale to large scale um, spatial uh, deployments and, and environments that can be fully supportable. So yesterday, Paul, your um, keynote was really about, is a, was a call to arms, you know, that we should use open source, but also contribute to open source in various ways. So why? Why should you contribute? Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of why should you use um, as geospatial professionals. It really behooves you, if you're building your career, to have a skill set which goes beyond one toolbox. Um, the Esri toolbox is wonderful. It's big. It does lots of things. But if you only stay in that toolbox, you have a constrained understanding of what's possible. You know, what licenses do I need? What can the software actually do? When you get outside of that world, there is a whole other ecosystem of tools you can use. So professional development is a very important reason just to, just to start using it. Um, once you've gotten over that threshold and you are using it, the question of why you would want to do it, why you would want to support open source um, personally, you don't have to. Um, you know, if it doesn't turn you on, if it's not your thing to pull off the covers, then don't. But a lot of folks do find that the, the community, the getting together um, aspect of open source is something which makes their brain happy and it's worth doing. Um, so, so it's just a personal enjoyment thing. Um, if you're in an institution, however, and you've begun using open source tools, if you've begun embedding those tools into the data flows of that institution, again, as a professional, it behooves you doing your job to tell the institution hey, we have an exposure here to this, to this tool set. It's a good tool set. It works for us. But just as if, we, if I'd built this tool set using Esri software and would tell you that you should pay support so that the software continues to be maintained and you have people that you can call, you should, for this open source tool chain, also think about how you're going to support it. I'm here right now. I can tell you how things work. But I should develop, you know, I should develop links into the community so that we have people in the community we can talk to if things go wrong. And if the project is big enough, um, if it's deep enough in our, uh, in our infrastructure, we should look at having a professional support contract with a local consulting company, with a company like Crunchy that I work for that provides particular support for a particular piece of software, Postgres in our case. 
Um, that's just what you do when you build your infrastructure around a, piece of, a particular piece of software. Um, otherwise, you're just crossing your fingers and hoping nothing goes wrong, and that's not ideal. Oliver, you've obviously dealt with both sides of the, the situation and you know, dealing with, with clients now. So why wouldn't an organization commit time or money to you know, giving back to open source community? I think there's probably a, almost a label around sort of open source and you know the fact that it is open it's it's free um, and it probably extends um, a little bit too far and there's a little bit of a uh, when I say too far I mean it extends past just getting access to the software but also in the support and maintenance side of things and it's probably just a, a lack of awareness there it's it's it, it's probably if there's a lack of awareness there where with any software product that you bring into your business, there needs to be a level of support for it. Um, and just because it's open doesn't mean that that support doesn't need to be in place. So I think you know what Paul said there where, hey, look, to have local um, service providers to help you out or perhaps bring in a, 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 a team, an internal team, to actually look after and, and manage that and be, uh, I suppose, active in the community as well, always looking ahead and seeing what what um, like-minded people are doing in the space and seeing if there's you know, additional functionality that could be of benefit to the organisation. What I find personally quite like, engaging and really exciting is that if you work on these tools, you might be working on it for your own purposes, but actually you get that added benefit of it's, it's for everyone else. And, and of course, the whole reason that the open source software exists to begin with is because someone else did exactly the same before you. So for those who do want to start contributing in some way, um, particularly when, when it actually comes to, you know, developing the software, where, where should they start? I've been thinking about um, people who are coming new to contributing to an open source community um, as an act initially of anthropology. So think about it like, uh, like trying to observe a family of monkeys. <laughs> so, so, uh, so first you're going to you know, you step back. You don't, you don't walk right into the circle right away. You study the tribe for a bit. You, know? you look how they interact with each other. So you, this would be reading email lists or if it's a primarily GitHub-oriented project, reading through tickets, see who responds to issues, how they respond, what parts of the software they respond on. You can identify the leaders in the social structure of a project, even if they haven't you know, written down a project steering committee list or a contributors list, just by reading the artifacts of mailing lists and issues, you can get a feel for who's who in the community. Um, learn some of the basic tooling. If they're a GitHub project, learn Git. Um, you know, depending on their language, learn their build process so that you're not coming in um, completely uh, unprepared and, and asking basic questions. Um, and then start small. So you've got an idea who to talk to, um, but you know, you're approaching the family. No sudden movements. You know, you don't walk in and say, I've got a great idea for re-architecting this whole module. You know, start with something small and get them acclimated to who you are and help them understand that you come in with useful changes. So find some small bugs you can fix, find some documentation you can change, get them used to the idea that you're going to be bringing contributions to the table. Um, and then once you're, if you have a target of building, doing a larger feature, uh, think about the permission framework within which you're going to get that feature into the project. So, you know, start by, you know, not spending a lot of your time on it, just describe it. You know, put it on the mailing list, say, I have this idea for a feature, it would be implemented more or less like this, what do you think? And see what comes back. 
Um, generally speaking, you'll get some feedback, and it'll range from, oh, no, that's a terrible idea, to, oh, that's, that's big and scary, that's why we've never done it. Um, you know, listen to what comes back, tune your proposal, do a proof of concept around that. Again, show, ask, get feedback um, before you move on to sort of the final investing a big chunk of time to do a full-fledged feature. You know, never show up with a completed thing and say, here, integrate yourself a little bit in the community first so you can get the signals back and understand whether what you are envisioning is in fact something that the community will take in. Because it's not, uh, contributions are not one-shot freebies, right? Once your code goes in, the community is stuck with it, maintaining it, maintaining that feature set forever. <laughs> so it really is not just about your effort, it's about what you're bringing into the community. Um, and then finally, sometimes maintainers, sometimes the community are busy on other things. Uh, you put out your create occur and you hear nothing back. There's nothing wrong with being persistent. There's nothing wrong with waiting a couple days and saying, hey, I put this thing up. What do you think of it? Um, persistence is not a crime. It's and people will not be uh, not be upset if uh, if you repeat your requests. So, so. It's, it sounds like you actually need to earn the trust of the people who have already been there. So it's like like you said, walking into some sort of pre existing social arrangement, which is quite different to the corporate world, where you know if there's a disruptor, he's there and he's saying or he or she, "Yep, we're here. Bad luck. I'm I'm on the, I'm on the block. What do you want? You know so." Um, it, it's very, it's a very different approach there. So my next question, Paul, is if someone wants to contribute and they're actually within a corporate organization or some sort of large structure there, how do they actually um, make the argument to their boss that either they should commit funds or they should commit time in, in you know, based on you know their man hours? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to to demonstrate to the institution that the baseline is not no cost. You know, if you've come into the organization and shown them QGIS and you've got a half dozen QGIS installations sitting on desktops that people are happily using, the alternative is a half dozen ArcGIS installations. So you could say, well, we made this choice, people are happy with it. If we hadn't made this choice, we would be sitting on, you know, N dollars worth of annual commitment and N dollars worth of capital commitment. So why don't we look at that chunk of savings and take a slice of it and say that we're going to use that slice to make sure that we are getting a good relationship with this community, which is giving us this lovely piece of software. So, you know, set the baseline higher than zero. It's not free. It's not magic fairy dust. And thank you, proprietary software industry. There is, in fact, a whole other case you can use to build up a dollar figure for what the alternative would be if you hadn't chosen to use open source. And the second one is just to make the insurance argument. You know, you've brought it in. You wouldn't be driving your car around without insurance. And that's not because you expect to get in a car accident, right? It's not because you think you don't, you don't get insurance because you think you're a terrible driver, right? No one thinks they're a terrible driver. In the same way, you do not try to build insurance around your open source system because you think your open source software is terrible. You build it because you never know. Mm. And the same thing is true in proprietary software. You build some insurance around it. So spending that money now in order to make sure you're safe in the future is a rational argument regardless of what software you're using. Um, the insurance metaphor is 100% gold-plated, um, and most IT organizations do understand that. They just haven't quite in their heads gotten around to understanding that that applies equally to software which has a $0 capital cost. 
they think that the $0 capital cost translates to a $0 operating cost, and it doesn't. You have to spend some staff time putting it in, you have to spend some staff time running it, and you should spend some staff time making sure that if things go wrong in the future, you're backed up. All right, to end the podcast, what I'll do is I'll just ask you both about some interesting things you've been seeing at the conference or interesting conversations. So for me, probably... um, the most interesting one that I saw so far was uh, MaoriMaps.com. Um, apologies to all New Zealanders. I just said that completely terribly. But it's about um, taking the um, cultural areas of the Maori community and actually documenting them and mapping them for the public to be able to understand where they are um, and why they're significant. So, Oliver, what, what are some conversations you've been having or, or, or things you've been seeing at the conference that are interest to you? Uh, for me, it's I suppose it's been around the exhibitor display and just seeing all the different examples of where the open source technology is being utilised and I suppose being integrated as well with um, proprietary systems too. So it's not just a, uh, I suppose, a homogenous, you have to use a bit of proprietary or actually everything has to be 100% open source. You can use a bit of both. Um, and so seeing some of those examples within the exhibitor display has been, um, yeah, really promising. At the end of the day, solutions just need to be uh, fit for purpose. Um, I started Postgres in 2001, and the open source ecosystem around geospatial kind of took off like a rocket in sort of the 2001 to 2007 period. And, and in that time, I was very, uh, I was very bullish and kind of in my head, you know, I was sort of rehearsing, you know, the world is changing and, you know, everything will be turned upside down in the next 10 years. And, uh, and here I am 20 years along, and, and sometimes I get depressed and think, oh, man, the world hasn't changed nearly as fast as I thought. I, 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 was, I was completely wrong. It's never going to happen. Um, I saw two different talks yesterday um, from people who were describing a change in their, in their, uh, their organization from pretty much a 100% proprietary basis in infrastructure to pretty much a 100% open source basis in infrastructure. And in both cases the timeline was they were 100% proprietary no more than five years ago, and they only finished switching over to open source a couple years ago. Um, so it's, it's being reminded that the revolution is not instantaneous and it's not going to sweep through the fields of industry like a great burning fire. It's incremental, but it's still going on. And it's going on in conservative organizations, in progressive organizations. It's still happening. Um, so in five years' time, I'll still probably be seeing use cases like that where, hey, they just discovered it a couple of years ago, and they're really enthusiastic about it, and they've changed over their infrastructure. But, uh, but it's an incremental process. It's an evolution, not a revolution. Excellent. Well, thank you very much both for joining me on the podcast today. If you'd like to subscribe, head to our website or go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.